You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I had injured my knee, so I had decided to give up dancing. Um, now, in quotes, give up. It's always in you. And so I, um, I moved on to get a master's at NYU, and after that, I, I was just done. I was done with the city, and I wanted some quiet. I wanted to reconnect with nature because it's always been a part of me. You can do it indoors together. You can do it for fitness. You can do it for relaxation. And then you can travel the world because there's really no place in the world that doesn't have some form of climbable stone. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 236, Adventuring Up and Outdoors, airing for the first time on Sunday, March 27, 2016. Where do you find your adventures? Maine offers something for everyone in the realm of adventure. Today, we speak with Holly Twining, founder of Maine Yoga Adventures, and Tino Fiamara and Taki Miyamoto of Salt Pump Climbing about the ways they are helping people get up and out in search of adventure. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. Today, I am so privileged to have a conversation with an individual who has combined a variety of different and interesting things into one really great new adventure. This is Holly Twining of Maine Yoga Adventures. Holly began her own exciting creation, Maine Yoga Adventures, after 10 years with Maine Audubon as a naturalist and communications coordinator. Started in July of 2015, Maine Yoga Adventures brings community together through adventures that include yoga practices, outdoor explorations in every season, healthy vegetarian food, and more. Diverse activities are tossed into the mix, such as wine and beer tastings, climbing, skating, and paddling. The adventures are statewide and are beginning to expand outside Maine's borders. Thanks for coming in and sharing your adventure with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I do love that it's not just yoga, it's yoga plus. Yes, yoga and a little extra, yeah. Always different, always exciting for me, often things that I've never done before. Yeah. So you're leading and teaching things that maybe you're kind of experimenting with yourself. I am. So I'm experimenting with them, but I have professionals leading, yes, the activities that I don't really know how to do. <laughs> 
Well, why yoga? What was the thing about yoga? Mm, so yoga brings us into a real special place right away. Um, it brings us together as a community. We come together with our breath and with our movement, with our smiles and laughter. It's such a uh, truly a nice way to bring people together. It's a comforting place, a place where I think people can feel really safe and supported. So it's a great place to start from and then leap into other places from there. Well, you're right that the fact that it is nice and comforting and safe enables us to feel better as we as we jump outward and feel maybe less safe as we yes. adventure. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think a big part of this company for me is jumping over fear. Um, I have, uh, you know, we all have fears, and I find myself doing things that I never thought I would do. And um, I feel so supported by my by the community that's come together through the adventures that I can do anything. <laughs> Well, you've been working with fear, I'm guessing, for quite a while because you lived in New York City as a performer and you were the art director of uh, Delicious Biscuit. Oh, yes. And a performer for (laughs) an experimental theater pioneer named Richard Foreman Mm -hmm. and a performance artist named Penny Arcade. Yes. So these are two huge personalities. Um, I was very lucky to actually end up with them in New York City. It's really hard um, uh, creating a life for yourself there as a performer. There's a lot of competition. Um, It's expensive to live there. Yeah. So... I was really lucky to be picked up by Richard Foreman in the the experimental theater world. Um, And I got to go on a European tour with them, which was really fantastic. Um, Penny Arcade is a super fabulous performer. She's big. She is a big person. And she just goes and and does everything that she's just, um, that she's feeling. Yeah, she's just, uh, she's so alive. And she, she had a big impact on me. Um, but it, it was hard. It was hard to get to those places. And having my own company, that was really scary. I mean, a friend of mine started one with me initially. And I was like, how do we do this? Really? We can do this? Are we good enough to do this? And she's like, yeah, you just do it, Holly. And you see what happens. And so I was really taken by that. And then I did. I started my own company there. Had a lot of friends supporting me, as I do now. Yeah. You also spent time at Maine Audubon, actually 10 years as a naturalist and communications coordinator. It seems like there's, um, it seems like you have a lot of interests in a lot of different areas. I do. Did, did any of this start when you were younger, when you were growing up? Yes. Yeah, so um, my father um, was an English professor and, and a birder, so he was really tied into nature. Um, so we would also... Um, try out some cultural things as well we'd go to museums we'd go birding we'd go on hikes my mom uh, was the other side she was very active she liked to go to the gym and her hikes were you know speedier she wanted to take the dog and you know really get out there um so I think we like to mix it up as a family um from lying on the couch and listening to whale sounds to you know going out on a brand new trail yeah um it was a it was a neat childhood, absolutely. Um, but that it really did. Um, my interests are so far and wide, and it and I, I found that in college that I couldn't focus on 
one thing so I was trying out several different things and all the way up into grad school I had a, um, an interdisciplinary degree at NYU yeah so I've always loved to mix it up maybe it's because I don't feel comfortable having one expertise um, you know maybe there's something about that for me that brings a little anxiety but having um, interests in a lot of places and being able to do um, some of those things quite well then that feels better to me. Yeah. Well, you know I'm going to have to ask you about that now that you said that you don't feel comfortable having one expertise. Why? <laughs> Why is that? Um, well, I, I do find that my expertise now is is yoga and different um, different aspects of yoga, different varieties that I teach. And and again, I feel comfortable having that expertise because it's in different ends. Like I teach children's yoga. I teach aerial yoga. I teach chair yoga, gentle, intermediate. It even comes into my very own expertise that I feel like I have to spread it out into different places. Uh, yeah, it's odd, but it, it's just how it seems to work out for me. Yeah. Well, I actually don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. And I, I wonder, because as a as a family doctor who has a master's in public health and an acupuncture background who also does a radio show writes for magazines wellness editor you know i'm not that different than you are Absolutely. and i think that sometimes the way that our society has gone sort of educationally has been more depth so you have to get really 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 good at really really specialized things mm -hmm. and so those of us who were i guess were more horizontal than vertical right we sometimes wonder are we doing the right thing but everything seems connected somehow it does it absolutely does and I think that's why I mean I think everybody has an interdisciplinary force in them because you are we're all naturally drawn to different things and and you don't want to get yourself too caught up I think in one particular direction you want to be open open to new experiences new ideas yeah absolutely where did you grow up I grew up in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. the biggest little state in the Union. <laughs> and so what was that like for you? Because I've been, I really have only been to Providence and um, just outside of Providence. It, it seems in some ways similar to Maine, but in some ways very different. Yes. So I lived in a small town outside of Providence, not far. Um, suburbia, actually. Um, I did see our town develop a little bit more than I wanted to, but that happened to Rhode Island and it happened to... Um, everywhere but um it's it's a neat place um we weren't uh so coastal as everybody thinks that you are you know we we're a little bit away but it's funny when you live in a little state there's um people think that driving 15 minutes is a long way yeah it becomes that so you live in california driving uh four hours to get somewhere and then driving back is no big deal but in rhode island it seems like oh man we have a half hour we have to drive to the beach mm, i don't know <laughs> it's a funny little place but um i have to say providence rhode island is one of my favorite cities it's laid back the people are fantastic they'll just stop and sit and talk over coffee and be with each other i love that about providence yeah mm -hmm. and rhode island itself I was just down in Providence for my daughter's 20th birthday because she goes to school in Providence, and she brought me to this really great little restaurant, um, I think called Red Stripe. And I, I, 
I was just, I was struck once again, as I have many times, because I've been down there a few times now. The food is fabulous. Oh, yeah. It's not that different than Portland, actually. It's really great. Mm-hmm. I love the Thai food I used to have there and um, a brunch I used to go to on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also got an interesting mix, not unlike Portland and Maine, of people who are kind of laid back and curious, but also creative and intellectual. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really it really does have a little bit more of a main vibe than I might have expected. Yes, it's a very artistic place. Absolutely. And all different types come together there. And it's, and it's a really neat space. Yeah. But you're in Maine now. I am. I'm in Maine. So why Maine? Yeah. So after being in New York City, for quite a long time, and and I, I won't speak on it much, but I was part of uh, the nine eleven experience. I was right, uh, I was very close to the to the buildings. Um, that changed my life, as it did many people's um, lives. But I had um, I had injured my knee, so I had decided to give up dancing. Um, you know, in quotes, give up. It's always in you, and so I. Um, I moved on to get a master's at NYU, and after that, I, I was just done. I was done with the city, and I wanted some quiet. I wanted to reconnect with nature because it's always been a part of me. Even in the city, though, I always found it there, and it's easy to do. But to, the big move to Maine, yeah, I thought I was going to come, actually, for um, a Ph.D. program, but we ended up coming for my husband, who ended up getting his master's at uh, UMaine. Yeah, funny turn of events, but it worked out so nicely. We walked into this house um, right uh, um, it's across the street from the Stillwater River in Orono, and it just spoke to me immediately. Okay, this is it. This is great. We're going to take this. <laughs> We're staying. <laughs> yeah, so that's how we came to Maine. Well, isn't that funny? Because my other child is at school at Orno, hey. so he actually has lived in a house right across from the river. So oh, wow. it's it's like my family is like following you around somehow. Neat, very neat. But yeah. um, so you also have um, you have two children. I do, which is interesting because in addition to having your two children, this husband who's gotten his education. Um, you also play tennis on a competitive team. <laughs> I, I mean, like, how do you even find the time for all of this stuff? I know. It seems so silly. How do I find the time? I don't even know. I, I played my first two matches of the season on Sunday morning. Um, and Sunday morning was right after the opening night of my husband's play, Hair Frenzy, at yeah, at Penobscot Theater. And I did want, win those two singles matches, but I really had to pull it out. <laughs> And then, you know, and then I'm right on to the next thing. You know, I had to get a couple new adventures on the website um, and hug my kids on the couch, you know, <laughs> before that. It's, it's, uh, there's a balance, absolutely. I'm trying to be there for the family and I'm trying to uh, keep myself well and physical. Those are things that I love to do, you know, playing tennis. Um, helps keep me sane, I think, yeah, um, so I can make space for it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, I also teach, you know, I teach five yoga classes uh, a week, which keeps me busy as well. But I find that I have more time to spend with my children and I'm a little happier having my own business. It's a huge challenge and it's hard, but it's so worth it in so many ways. Yeah. It seems as though, um, the combination of yoga and adventuring is really, 
an idea whose time has come. It seems like this is the type of thing that people, and I guess you're hoping that that's so because you launched <laughs> this business, but it seems like people are really drawn back to understanding their own bodies, but also understanding their interplay with nature. Mm-hmm. So how do you read that within our culture? Why do you think that that is so? Yeah, I feel like um, we've gotten so sucked into our phones, into technology, um, you know, being at dinner with people and you see people on their phones and, and you just want to bring people back to to sitting together, to talking to each other, to looking at each other. I think part of our... Um, Part of ourselves, I think we're really seeking connection again, um, that we've drawn far further away from it. Um, and I'm not just blaming technology, you know, I'm not. It's just the way that uh, I think we've grown as a society. We've grown real busy um, into maybe careers or um, just our own paths, what, are, what we're doing and just driven. And we gotta, you know, still take moments and and connect. Um, I think it's really important now, and I think a lot of people are seeing that. You can just sit at home all day and all night. You can work from home. You can watch your TV or your your um, computer screens. Uh, it's it, you you can do that <laughs> easily. So I want to pull people out of that. I want them to come back outside. I want them to come enjoy trails and. And all the things you can do outside in every single season. You can do it with your family. You can do it with a couple friends or people you don't even know. Yeah. I think we're craving it now. It's a good time. It's a good time for it. And you should see the faces I see on my adventures. The people are just elated. We, you know, often we don't know each other. And it's it's thrilling. It's exciting getting to know each other. And, these blissful faces. Yay! When's the next adventure? <laughs> well, tell me about some of your favorite adventures. Mm, um, I've uh, worked with Mainbound for a second time, and they're the climbing wall over at UMaine. Um, my first time, I was conquering my fear of, of heights. Yeah. <laughs> so this second one that I just did, it was a climbing and snowshoeing adventure. We hit the wall again, brand new people, uh, different, totally different group. And I just charged right up this time, and that was really neat. It just it wasn't in my head anymore. It was, it was just my body traveling up. It was so neat. Um, uh, it happened to be snowing that day, which was absolutely perfect because we needed it for snowshoeing. And ah, being outside with the ladies in the snow and playing in our snowshoes and practicing some yoga poses, and it was gorgeous. Oh, it was it was pretty perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we got to the beer part. We went to a local brewery and everybody loves that. Well, everybody seems to love it. And uh, my famous soup, too. I made my famous uh, coconut curry tofu vegetable soup. Yum. Yeah, that sounds great, actually. <laughs> that last part, especially. Yeah. I like the I mean, probably everything but the beer. I don't love heights, but I, I, I can do them. But I like, you know, those all sound like a really good combination, which I think is great because you're really kind of appealing to people's different sensory um, features, I guess. Yeah, and I will say, if you're not into beer, I had a couple gluten-free friends on that adventure, and they got the cider. (laughs) Not that you all have to drink with me. No, I like cider's good, too. Um, (laughs) 
What other types of adventures do you go on, and who usually does these adventures with you? Um, so uh, I have targeted all kinds of ages. I have um, family adventures, which can be really fun. I had one this summer where we spent um, most of it outside. Um, we started with the yoga practice outside. The kids went in uh, for an art lesson with our local artist, Valerie Wallace, which was fantastic. And then we went outside again and walked along the river, and some of the kids went swimming, jumped in with their clothes on, which I thought was really sweet. <laughs> Wild and free. Um, and then, uh, then I'll have an adventure with my chair yoga ladies. We'll have a chair yoga practice, um, go eat some yummy food. And one of the adventures, we went to our local Thai restaurant, Thai Orchid, and they seemed to really love it. And then we went to a, um, a presentation at the library, which was really neat. So um, all different kinds of age ranges and uh, experiences, so physical experiences. So some of them I have to take down a little bit, and some of them I pump up a little bit, like my next um, a very physical, fun adventure is March. Well, outside of all my cross-country skiing ones, I have two cross-country skiing adventures coming up. But I just um, put into place a main warrior gym adventure, right? So we're going to get our ninja warriors on. <laughs> and, uh, and that'll be for kids and for adults like me who just really want to do it. I want to try that stuff. I want to try the obstacles as well. So there's a, yeah, there's such a diverse group of people that I'm trying to bring together and that end up do coming together. Um, I, I have noticed, though, there are primarily ladies that are coming out so far. Yeah. Um, my first adventure, I had three gentlemen, and that was a uh, kayaking, well, a paddling and wine tasting adventure, my very first one in July. Oh, that was great. <laughs> so I'll be back to paddling, of course, as the weather changes. So what lessons have you learned as a small business owner who's really, you know, starting this from the ground up? Yeah, I've learned to uh, avoid holidays. <laughs> I tried to schedule a paddleboarding and tennis adventure that just seemed super fabulous. <laughs> yeah, and it, uh, it didn't work out because it, it was on a big holiday. And I didn't realize it was on a holiday <laughs> until it was too late. So some funny things like that. Um, I've I did learn not to cancel if there's snow because we want the snow in the adventure and people still came and that was great. Um, yeah, I'm I'm learning so much along the way um, and I'm trying to actually do a couple adventures a month, like a bigger one and then a smaller local one. So um, so far that's worked, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, so much to learn, and I'm just going at it. <laughs> I just, I don't really know. I'm just trying things, and I want to keep it really creative, and I want to be able to inspire people and myself, you know, keep it interesting for myself, yeah. What is your one hope for the upcoming year, if you have one, with regard to your life or with main yoga adventures? Pick either one. Mm. Oh, gosh, I... I just hope I I can continue to spread the word about uh, getting people outside, getting them con connected to a yoga practice. Oh, I'm not flexible enough. Well, you should probably come to yoga class or come on an adventure. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Um, 
I want to bring the hordes out with me outside, anybody, everybody. Let's get outside, connect to nature, and connect to your physicality. We'll do a lot of things that are different and maybe scary. We got to jump over our fear together. <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking forward to a year of surprising adventures, creative adventures. Yeah. Holly, how can people find out about your surprising and creative Maine Yoga adventures? Well, they can go to my website, mainyogaadventures.com, and anybody can call me if they just want to talk and come up with their own adventure. I'm really happy to do that. And that's 207-299-0082. We've been speaking with Holly Twining from Maine Yoga Adventures. Thanks so much for coming in and spending time with us today and also for the work you're doing, bringing people back into their bodies and back into nature. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. Not so long ago, I was driving down the road in Scarborough and I saw this new building and it said salt pump climbing said, huh, I'm really intrigued by this because I know that climbing has become much more popular. It's not something that I do a lot of myself, but anybody who's interested in bringing this sort of thing to the state of Maine is somebody I want to talk to. So today we have with us Taki Miyamoto, who is a partner and general manager at Salt Pump Climbing, and Tino Fiumara, who is the head route setter and assistant program director at Salt Pump Climbing. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Indeed. Why is it called salt pump climbing? What do you think of when you hear salt pump? Oh my gosh, questions asked back. Um, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's part of the idea with it so that it sticks in people's minds and gets people thinking about what salt pump means. Uh, from our perspective, we wanted to tie it back to Maine somehow, a name that ties back to Maine. So we thought about the ocean and the salt and at one point it was uh, salt was one of the most valuable minerals in the world, so we like those connotations. Uh, it's still an essential mineral, so we like that connotation. Uh, and the pump comes from, we have a pond behind our building, and so a water pump is where the community used to gather, so we like that connotation. And the pump itself has a uh, use in climbing. When, you're, when you've climbed a lot or you're feeling pretty good, you say, people would say, I'm pumped. So it had a little bit of a tide to climbing. So we combined those two words, it sounded nice, it stuck. Um, and then one thing we did do with the name is that we didn't include the word gym. And that's because we aspire to be more than a gym at some point. We want to be a home away from home for people. So that's why it's Salt Pump Climbing Company and not Salt Pump Climbing Gym. 
Well, I will probably never forget salt pump climbing, so I, you have done your job effectively. Great. <laughs> uh, Tina, what is a root setter? When you go into a climbing gym uh, or any type of indoor climbing facility, you see holds all over the walls. Uh, and many people think that they're there just scattered about for you know so that we can scale them and and really they're kind of intricately designed routes uh you know courses in in a way to follow that you we actually set monochromatically so you follow a certain color up you know and per the terrain that you're climbing you can have a different style a different difficulty a different feel and you're creating all these different experiences on on the wall so i kind of i'm an, an experience creator how did you get to be experienced in this, and what's the skill set necessary? A lot of movement. It's, uh, it's 20 years of climbing in you know, uh, different places across the world and lots of different types of stone. And then uh, on the inside aspect, thinking about your entire possible uh, client population from two-year-olds to 80-year-olds and body styles and morphologies, tall people, short people, how you can make something accessible to everybody, fun for everybody, yet also kind of true to grade and uh, true to a certain sense of, uh, you know, as we understand climbing to be from outdoors. Tino, I'm interested in your background because um, you've done a lot of different things. Actually, both of you have done a lot of different things as I'm looking through, um, looking through your background information. But you've climbed kind of consistently in your life. Correct. Is that a thing? Once people start climbing, do they do they just keep doing it because they can't stop for some reason? Yeah, and it actually fits very well with why Salt Pump is not just a climbing gym. Climbing is a lifestyle, and there's from the kids that come into it to like I was mentioning the 80 year olds who they're there regularly, and you have these multi generational populations interacting enthusiastically about the exact same thing and that's one of the more beautiful things about climbing uh, is that cross-generational approach uh, as well as you can do it indoors together you can do it for fitness you can do it for relaxation and then you can travel the world because there's really no place in the world that doesn't have some form of climbable stone how about you Taki you went to Bates that's I believe one of your initial connectors with Maine but then you practice as an attorney both um, in New York and also in Tokyo? Yep, that's right. Uh, climbing has always been a constant since I started. Uh, we like, at Salt Pond, we like to say that climbing can enrich our lives and the culture can make the world a better place. So I think once people start climbing, um, they see a lot of parallels, usefulness uh, in their daily lives, and they make climbing, they try to make climbing a central part of their everyday life, whether it's just knowing people who climb a lot so they come together at, at salt pump or, or go outside on the weekends or whenever. Um, they, Once you get hooked in sort of not just the act of climbing, but in the culture of it and making your relationships, your, your whole life starts to revolve around climbing. And so for me personally, that's always been the case. It's been a constant part, whether it's just sort of centering myself at the end, at the end or beginning of the day, um, thinking about things to look forward to, sort of uh, thinking about when I think about traveling, it's more or less to the chagrin of some of my friends and probably my wife, it's always been around climbing. So it, um, it, uh, 
helps me get through everyday life. Help me through the, the transition from attorney to general manager at sure. the climbing company. Yeah, so I started climbing at Bates, and then after that I was working for the National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, for um, a few years, and then at some point I always wanted to be an attorney, in part because I always wanted to do something that involved Japan, which is where my family is still. So especially as they grow older, thankfully they're still healthy, but say they were to get unhealthy, I, I need to somehow be near them. And they're not moving here, so I need to move back to Japan. So thinking about those issues is what got me thinking about law school and then wanting to do something conservation-oriented. Um, at the end of the day, I, law school allowed me to do something involving Japan. So I worked in Tokyo for a while. Um, but at the same time, I was in a relationship with my current wife now, who's a Mainer. Uh, she's a soil scientist. She's not a city person. So we need to figure out a place to live together. And through this whole 10, 15 years of dating, we were always in a long distance relationship. And when we would talk about where can we finally live together, the choices were pretty limited. But where we knew for sure that would potentially work was Maine. So that's when I started getting thinking about trying to make a living here and one idea that I've been sort of nurturing since pretty much the first time I was in a climbing gym was to open my own climbing gym. And so that brought me back to Maine and that's sort of how it ties all together. The experience I had as an attorney, which was a more business transaction re related attorney, helped me uh, gain the necessary experience to open and, and to a certain extent manage a climbing gym. So that's all how it kind of ties together. Well, I'm seeing more and more that people um, need to exercise many different aspects of their personalities, that sure. you can't just be an intellectual, you also have to exercise your physical nature. And, sure. and more and more people are comfortable with saying, yeah, I, I, need to, I am a complex individual. I can't go and pick one straight sure. path and yeah. do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Do you see people coming into the um, into salt pump? I don't want to call it a climbing gym because you don't want to call it a climbing yeah, thank gym you. <laughs> um, who are kind of uh, who are like that who are multifactorial who are who are liking the intellectual aspects of their lives but also emotionally socially they have needs they know they need to meet and physically obviously yeah it's a beautiful thing and I'll, I'll let Tino answer this too from his experience but the great thing about salt pump and I think a lot of sort of places where people gather is and especially a place like salt pump is that once you're in the facility or once you sort of come come together as a group it, you know your social status your 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 professional background your whether you're a student you're a doctor whoever it sort of becomes an equalizer the act of climbing becomes an equalizer so for people to have that outlet is is where we think we can we're more than just a climbing gym a fitness facility it's sort of it's a happy place for everyone. When a, we had a girl who came in who's been coming pretty much since day one and she had to write an essay at school about where's your happy place and she kindly wrote that it was salt pump and so that that's sort of what we're aspiring to be in terms of sort of the feel of the place. So hopefully you know people are able to express something they're not able to express either in their professional life or more of their genuine self, their genuinely happy self. Um, and then, uh, of course, there's always, you don't have to be social. People can come in there just to sort of 
reset their lives. They're, I'm sure everyone has stresses and busyness in their lives and they come just to be themselves or have a quiet moment. A lot of people come in and we say, how's your day going? And they say, oh, it's better now that I'm here. So that kind of stuff makes our what we're doing worth what we're doing. Tino, you also have a business background and you are the editor at large for the Climbing Business Journal? Correct. And you also worked as a carpenter on Oars Island back a ways. Mm-hmm. So you um, you have this the same sort of multifaceted aspect to your personality. Do you feel like that helps you when you're working with the people who come into Salt Pump so that you can relate to what they're doing? Yes. To you know, you know your we your climbing partners in a sense, and be them clients or regulars or members they're people that you climb with and you share something with everyone you climb with because of it's a shared experience uh, and be it a whatever walk of life somebody comes from you're all there to to share a good time to learn and to challenge yourself uh, and the multi-faceted uh, background does help with that you get to communicate with a lot of people on uh, you know, in, in everyone's own unique way because everyone communicates differently and it's kind of the, one of the wonderful things about salt pump and climbing. I, I have been only once climbing because I still am dealing with a fear of heights, but the one time that I did go climbing as a college student, I was struck by um, this sense that everybody really did need to work together and everybody did need to pay attention and that you went up and somebody was always there beneath and in my case above and um, and that was interesting because I think we live in a culture where sometimes you can get very self-centered and you, sometimes you feel as if there really isn't anybody who's kind of down at the bottom waiting for you yeah you can't be on a f- cell phone on a on a phone uh, when you're climbing which is I think a good thing it's so hard to get people's attention these days when you're at self I rarely see people on the phone mm-hmm. um, so in that sense, people are paying attention to what you're doing. People, you're paying attention to what other people are doing, and you're also paying attention to yourself. So in that way, it's a good way to get in tune with yourself again. Um, so I think people probably are attracted to that aspect of, of climbing. Yeah, people disconnect from, from social media, and they connect with each other just because you look out for each other like you would like to be looked out for and that's whether or not you're belaying for somebody or spotting somebody or even just watching somebody climb to learn a sequence and just paying attention to them in a sense and we try to our staff uh, myself included try to be encouraging too so not just staring at people but we you'll hear multilingual encouragement going on in Japanese that's gumba so we try to say gumba a lot um, and I hear people saying that, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then Forza would be in Italian, because Tino here is fluent in Italian. Um, we try to get a few other languages in there. So in that sense, it's not just paying attention, but also sort of being supportive of each other. And that's that, I think, is starting to... We've only been open for seven months, but that sort of encouraging, happy culture is starting to permeate through, through not just the staff, but then everyone else who comes. There's actually even a two-year-old who's coming to the gym who has learned the vernacular, and when mom or dad's climbing on the wall, we'll, we'll say gamba. It's great. Yeah, it's hilarious. That <laughs> she just picked that up. So <laughs> I guess the story is she was, she's been climbing at Salt Pump for a little bit, 
as, as a two-year-old can. And she went home, they went home for Christmas, they were opening presents, someone was struggling to open a presents, and all of a sudden she started saying, gamba, gamba. <laughs> so, and gamba means? You got it, um, you can do it. It's just an encouraging word that people use in, in Japanese. So you hear that, if you go climbing with Japanese people, you'll hear that a lot. And forza, is that like strong or? Correct, yeah. As in like, you know, be strong, you can do it. There's kind of a uh, connotation to it. We've seen more um, climbing facilities in the past, I want to say, 20 years or so. Prior to that, I don't remember there being a lot of, except maybe an isolated climbing wall. Um, I don't remember there being a lot of facilities like that in the state of Maine. And what is it that you attribute that to? Why why has it become more popular lately? It's become more of a, a business in the last few years as we watch uh, industry stats pick up uh, in the growth of the industry. But the first... What you say recorded climbing gym in the U.S. was, I believe, in 1987 out uh, in Seattle for Vertical World, and it's just slowly grown. But it's people like Taki from one you know uh, course of life who wanted to you know bring more climbing into the world, and they took their expertise and they took that energy and put it into uh, into a climbing environment, and it's slowly grown. And we're uh, in I think in the U.S. we're uh, almost around 370 gyms. Uh, every state has a gym now, but we're still behind Europe in, in that sense where it's just that much more regular, like a soccer facility. You know, climbing because of the multi-generational aspect of just the, the fun that you're not on a bike or on a treadmill, that you're applying yourself and it's mental problem solving and elation when you get through something and shared experience and, you know, all these things make for an incredible experience that... Uh, I think one of the hardest things the industry faced at some point, probably about 15 years ago, especially in mass, was uh, people looked at climbing like an amusement. You know, oh, climb ride. And that had to be monitored in a legal sense, but it's because it's not that. It's just, it's its its own thing. It's a sport. It's a lifestyle. It's, It's an experience. And as this has gotten more popular because of the true aspects of it, the empowerment cycle to it, the, you know, uh, challenged by choice, you can tailor your sessions. You know, you don't look at each single time you go climbing like, well, I didn't hit that mile per hour or something. It's its its own thing. Uh, and that, it's just, it's an incredible experience that people want to share. And so it has grown. And right now, you know, uh, climbing gyms are on the, on the rise. But Maine, I think it was about 15 plus years ago mm-hmm. when the first gym opened. And really at 4,000 square feet or so has serviced the entire state of Maine out of Portland for that entire time. And now there's, you know, there's, there's, there's two in many states. I mean, Boston has almost six or so, and it's growing. And it's still not mainstream by any means. Mm. It's great that uh, Maine Magazine or Maine Radio recognizes that we're out there. Um, but, for example, it's still not an Olympic sport. It will be for Tokyo and Japan. It's going to be a, not a full sport, but it'll be a spectator sport. So they're going to be there's going to be climbing in the Olympics in Europe. They have almost all high schools have their own climbing team, and that's not the case here in the U.S. Um, if you look at stats of how many people are participating in more quote unquote mainstream sports like soccer, baseball, all that sort of, we're far far behind. So uh, I hope there are more climbing gyms that come to Maine that come all over the U.S. Um, and and people are climbing more, make it more and more part of their daily life. 
and it, it's not just indoors climbing. Indoor climbing is an end in itself, but there's also a lot of areas where you can take it to, especially in the U.S., especially in New England. So the world is the world of climbing is pretty pretty big, and I don't think people are aware of it. You know what you see on mainstream media is usually uh, people doing a little bit scary things, which is fine. But there's a lot more to it than just scary things. And there are plenty of ways to manage the risk, and uh, so we hope that it continues to grow. I think we're just sort of at the baby stages of of climbing in in the U.S. Well, that led into to a question that's probably obvious to both of you, and that is with movies like Everest, where you see that people do this extreme climb um, and then don't survive. How does that impact uh, climbing facilities or the public perception of climbing? The public perception, I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure there's so many versions of that. Uh, But at the end of the day, when people come into salt pump, we try to explain that there are various ways of managing the risk. You're always going to be taking on risk, just as you are when you're driving or doing anything else in life, you're always taking on some kind of risk. But with seatbelts, similar thing, we manage that risk. And that's what we try to impart into people. So when you see people who are doing Everest or who are doing um, climbing walls without ropes, all this sort of stuff, I like people to think that those aren't people who are taking extreme risks, but from their perspective, they are managing that risk, whether it's watching the weather correctly, watching the rock, watching their physical ability, their mental health, their spiritual health. So they're all managing that risk, similar to whatever you're doing um, in, in your daily life. Or you know, The statistics are that a lot there are a lot of other sports that are much more dangerous than, than climbing. There are much more, there are other, a lot of other activities that are inherently riskier than climbing. So we like people to think that, okay, it does look risky. There are a lot of dangers involved, but there are ways to manage the risk. And where do I learn that? Either from friends or come to Salt Pump and we'll we'll, uh, impart that knowledge. You mentioned that um, travel is often centered around climbing. Mm What are some of your favorite places to travel to? And more importantly, what are some of your favorite places in Maine? One of my favorite places would probably be Sardinia, uh, just off the west coast of Italy for culture, for stone, for that life. Uh, And in a way, it almost like some of the rural characteristics uh, personify well here in in Maine. And it's hard. My wife and I just moved back to Maine over the summer, and we moved back because it's got a bit of everything. You have seasons, you've got great people, you have mountains, you have coast, you have places where there are no people. It's, there's so many wonderful things that, you know, drew us here and, you know, it, in essence, that was our our choice. You know, we've lived in a couple places and Maine has it. And does Maine have places to climb outside? Maine has fantastic stone. And from a, a long time climber's perspective, perspective there's a lot of stone in Maine that hasn't been found and been climbed. And it's not that you're looking to conquest, you're just looking for a new experience and perhaps you know, uh, help open new things to, to more people and, and have good land management and good practices and just be able to yeah, create more experiences. 
Taki, do you have favorite places that you climb in Maine? I do. One of the favorite, my favorite places uh, is a place called Shag Crag. It's on Shag Pond near Woodstock, Maine. So just north of South Paris. It's, it's gorgeous. In part, our, our, some of our climbing terrain at Salt Pump is inspired by that, that piece of rock there. Um, it's a unique stone. It's granite. It's overhanging. Um, so it's just where I love to go. It's hard to describe exactly our love. It's sort of like, <laughs> but anyway. And then, but in terms of other areas in Maine, Acadia is a world-class destination. There's a lot of climbing that goes on there, and the and the setting is hard to beat, right on the coast. So that's probably Maine's world-class destination for for rock climbing. And even though Maine has a lot of granite, you have this kind of pink Conway granite. The, a lot of the stuff in the mountains is a metamorphic granite. And so even though it's granite, it looks completely different and thus it climbs different and has a different aesthetic. And uh, you can have all that variation all within the same place. So given that I've admitted that I have this fear of heights, how would you work with somebody like me? Because I can't be the first person that you've come across that has said, hey, I'd like to rock climb, but yep. I don't really want to get up in the air where there's stuff, there's nothing underneath me. Sure. I have a fear of heights, and my fear of heights is this isn't too bad, but say we, uh, this isn't the second floor isn't too bad, but say in New York they have these buildings that are 70, 80 stories high with big windows. That scares me a lot. I cannot go close to that window because I have no idea whether this window is secure. Same thing with climbing. If I'm not tied into something or if I don't know how I got up there, it scares me. If I drop something and I feel the the height, it scares me. So what helps, I think, with people who have a fear of heights is to know how you got there, where you are, and what the risk is. So how, if you were to fall, what's going to happen? To have that knowledge, I think, is a first step in, in quote-unquote, conquering your fear of heights. Tell me how people find out about salt pump climbing. They can, you know, just like you saw it driving by. You know, a lot of people have stopped in and they've driven the Hagus for a while and never seen and you know a building there. Now it's lit up at night with large windows and you know super colorful. Or uh, you know, a lot of times, most of our marketing has happened really word of mouth, uh, which has been fantastic. People enjoy the experience. They love it. They share it, and you know, we hear that through a day in and day out through clients. And then uh, saltpumpclimbing.com on the web. Uh, we have a Facebook page. People definitely find us through those sources, but most of it is is uh, word of mouth. Uh, and it's amazing uh, coming from uh, areas that with larger urban gyms where people do search you out through normal marketing means that it's to be recommended from a friend is a is the the best you know form of advertising we could ask for. And with that, we actually get to. Ex- share the experience with more people because a lot of people who get it recommended to aren't climbers and so we have this incredible population of people who their first time climbing was at salt pump and they've grown into their own in climbing at salt pump even just in seven months you know watching people kind of blossom in that capacity and and you know to share that experience is we're psyched that people are you know consider us that close to them to, to share that have we been able to convince you to come to Salt Pump? I think so. Good. Yeah, we'll see. 
I, I have to not think too much about this. I, someday I'll just have to like drive over and, and not. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're doing is pretty great. So I'm, and I actually really enjoyed the one time I went climbing to get to the top and knowing sure. how I felt about heights. Sure. It really is, there is some sense of empowerment to, to sort of push through something that doesn't feel that comfortable. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We've been speaking with Taki Miyamoto, his partner and general manager at Salt Pump Climbing, and Tino Fiumara, who is the head root setter and assistant program director at Salt Pump Climbing. Thanks so much for coming in, and I hope people will check out your facility and see what you have to offer. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you there. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 236, Adventuring Up and Outdoors. Our guests have included Holly Twining, Taki Miyamoto, and Tino Fuyamara. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our adventuring up and outdoors show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, McPage, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Alby. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an excerpt from next week's program. It's really fun to have people in the studio with me who um, I just... I just like as human beings and who are also my friends, but also I know the new pretty high quality um, uh, community movers and shakers. And I think this individual, you will listen to her and you will understand why I feel so strongly about her. This is Emma Wilson. She is a managing director of Art Collector Maine and also a fellow Yarmithian. I don't know that that's, that's right. actually a word, but citizen of, of Yarmouth. <laughs> of course yes. it is. Thanks for coming in, Emma. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So, Emma, you and I have known each other for quite a while and I've always been interested in your background and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing with Art Collector Maine because you've done a lot of other things Mm -hmm. social work you've worked within Mm -hmm. the psychiatric field you've moved around a lot as a military spouse walk me through the process of how it is that you came to be the managing director at Art Collector Maine it's a great question. <laughs> so I think that the, um, uh, so where do I start? The, uh, my journey, as you, as you referenced, you know, definitely starting in the social work field and then moving around the country quite a bit, you know, through a period of time for over the course of 12 years and when um, living in almost every part of the region and, and really always valuing my work with kids and, 
and um, with youth and children and, and their families. But then when I was living in the South in the Bible Belt, I got um, sort of reconnected with the arts in a way that um, was very important to me, um, was going back into the work field after having three young children and being with them. And the arts were just always a place where it felt safe, I felt comfortable, I felt like there were people that were interested in having dialogue about things that were relevant and meaningful in their life that I agreed with and, or disagreed with, it didn't matter. And so, and, and actually have family members who are artists and living supporting artists. Um, so I came to Maine and became very involved with the Portland Museum of Art, worked there, uh, was part of their docent program, and it felt really good, but then was starting to miss the um, the teenage, you know, population and sort of, and then it was offered an opportunity to do development work with Wayfinder Schools, which is a wonderful program that works with teen parents and, and kids at really high risk of not completing high school. So I found a lot of pleasure and satisfaction with working um, with them and also became more and more involved with the broader community of donors at that time. And, and just through the experience and being in Maine since 2007, everybody's connected and it just constantly amazes me how that, how that happens. And through having a conversation with, with Kevin um, Thomas, became aware of an opportunity around returning to work within the arts, but also be able to continue to work with making you know, furthering connections and supporting the arts um, felt like a really good opportunity and a good fit in that moment in time. So, so that happened last August, and so that's where I am. <laughs> Emma, you're from New Jersey originally. I am, yeah, and Jersey girl. You went to college in New York State. I did. Um, your education was in social work. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to do that? So I went to BU for social work. I had. Um, my undergrad degree was in sociology. Certainly relationships and connections were always, you know, connecting with people were always interesting to me, how people, func you know, think, work together. Social work was a more interesting field for me because it's, to me, it was all about systems working together and sort of strengthening the individual. And so how those strength, how those systems work together was more um, in line with the way that I seemed to practice. And so that's how I decided to go to social work school and then from there worked in a psychiatric community and, and in education um, systems as well. So that was why, that was why. So yeah. you started your education um, in New York State doing sociology yeah. as an undergraduate. Yeah. And that worked its way into a desire to do some mm -hmm. work in the social work field. Yeah. It's not an easy field. No, it's not. There's a lot of a lot of challenges um, that are prevalent in our society still, and that were there then. And so, um, but I really am drawn to trying to help when I can, try to become civically engaged, and and really wanting to participate, and not just watch it happening around me, but wanting to participate. So that is definitely. Um, what compelled me, I think, to stay with it. People are amazing. They have amazing stories. They're just so, um, it's just an honor and a privilege when you get to know somebody's person, you know, to, to know their life. So that was. Was there anything in your family that any sort of, you said you have artists in your family. I have artists in my family, sir. So yeah, I come from the most dysfunctional family in the universe, but no, I definitely have. And you can leave that on the tape. They all, we all know it. <laughs> so, no, it's not the most dysfunctional, but we definitely, I had uh, an interesting upbringing. Um, I'm one of four girls. My parents split when I was in third grade. They finally divorced when I was in ninth. There was a lot of, a lot of challenges that we um, encountered during that time period. So I think that that certainly there were people in my life that were very helpful. It wasn't 
formal as a therapist or whatever it might be, but it was a youth group or a teacher or some some adults in my life that were making sure that 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 I knew that I was cared about. And my parents, of course, as well, to, to the best of their ability. But um, I think that um, certainly influenced me wanting to be able to be an adult in another person's life, to be able to show them that they care about them. So. Well, it's interesting. As I asked that question, I was thinking she's going to say, like, all my siblings were social workers. I, I, I've oh. never had anybody say I have the most dysfunctional family in the world. <laughs> well, no, and, I, and that's that's a strong statement. I take, I shouldn't retract that. But no, my sisters and I, interestingly, one's an artist, one's a lawyer, one's a journalist, and a social worker. So it's just we're an interesting combination. So yeah. Well, and actually, I think the fact that you can say that were dysfunctional, but you seem to still have a lot of love for them. Oh, and I absolutely. know that you're very close to them. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah. I, I, I like the fact that it's it doesn't have to stand mm-hmm. as being a right. negative and rooted in some sort of dysfunction. It, it really doesn't. It doesn't. And we all have, you know, I always, I've said it already once today, but, you know, we all have these stories, and I think that it, you ha- it's in order to embrace it. And the more that I try to push away from my story and who... The, the further away I became from who I am and, and it just I don't think in the end that that's necessarily the way that I'm the most healthy you know that, that where I'm you know in my best thank you for listening to Love Maine Radio we hope that you can join us for next week's program 